for the love of the game, some things need to change. Some need to remain the same. But how do we decide which is the case? It may not be easy, but it has to be done. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Because last week's episode was devoted completely to the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball, we have a lot of catching up to do. And through the week, I jotted down a a number of topics that I wanted to address. There's no way I can address them all in any detail in this one episode. As a matter of fact, I can't even read off the whole list. So I'm not going to cover some things, at least not very much, that should be addressed, that need to be addressed if we love the game. And as we talk about loving the game, we have to keep in mind this. If we're truly going to love the game, love people, Love any person, any industry, any institution. It has to start with loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then include loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have to start there. Now, I recognize even when we do, there can be disagreements about what is in the best interest or in the love of a person or the game of baseball or anything else. But if we start there and we have disagreement, we can go back there. In other words, we go back to the standard of what God says is love, loving him and loving others. So here are some of the things that I jotted down that I'm only going to touch on briefly in this episode. Things that need to go from the game if we love the game and we love the people in the game as well as those who are fans of it. First of all, gambling being promoted and encouraged by Major League Baseball. That has got to go. Women managing and coaching. I brought this up several weeks ago. Uh, I can't remember which episode it is now, but referenced Titus 2 and actually was brought up because of uh, a former guest on In the Bullpen, Pastor Jenkins, who wrote about it and got attacked. The ongoing nonsense of COVID protocols. It is impacting the game still today. Still, almost now to May of 2022, it's got to go. And tanking, and allowing teams to tank without any real consequences also has to go. Here are a couple of things that need to change if we love the game and the people in the game. The way that the Trevor Bauer situation is being handled. A couple of things. First of all, what he did was wrong, wicked, evil sinful, not in any way condoning it. But unless there is information that has not come out so far, what they have done to Trevor Bauer is a disgrace. Again, I think we are in double digits now, 10, 11, 12 times his administrative leave has been extended, this time through April the 29th. As I said, if things come out down the road that show that this was legitimate, I will retract my statement. But everything that I can see, this is an affront and an attack on Trevor Bauer. 
and he is being treated unjustly. Now, you may say, well, I'm not a big Trevor Bauer fan anyway. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like the way he acts on the field. That's not the point. If they can do this because they don't like the way he talks, they don't like the way he acts on the field, first of all, it's wrong for Trevor Bauer, but second of all, don't think it's going to stop with Trevor Bauer. Something else that needs to change is technology. No, it's not to be eliminated. Data and analytics are good things not to be eliminated, but they have to be reined in. I read a very good article. I'm not going to address it today. I may in a future episode. It was in the New York Post on Friday. Phil Mushnick wrote the article. Very good article. If you want to look at it again, New York Post, Friday, April the 22nd. Phil Mushnick. Good article. I may come back to it. But he makes some very good and important points. But again, all I can do today is touch on those things. I want to focus on a few others as we talk about doing things for the love of the game. Now, here's a man who loves the game of baseball. A man who thoroughly enjoys playing the game of baseball. And he's the kind of player that we need more of in the game of baseball. Now listen to the hand from Miguel Cabrera. All stand. Just turned 39 years old. One hit away from 3,000. One of three Tigers in franchise history to win as many as four batting titles. Waiting on the strike one. On the way. Fastball up and away. One ball, one strike. Miguel's off to a 12 for 39 start. Admitted he might have been getting a little big the other day with his swing. I just feel like today, Jim, this is uh, this is the day. This is the day. Upright, relaxed stance. Tucks the left shoulder in as he cocks the bat over the right. The 1-1 ground ball. Base hit in the right! 3,000 for Miguel Cabrera! Raises his arms. Iglesias, the first to hug him. The Tigers' dugout empties as they charge over to first base and let the hug dispensing begin. What a great moment that took place on Saturday as Miguel Cabrera joins Ty Cobb and Al Kaline as the only Tigers to accumulate 3,000 career hits. And again, here's a guy who loves playing the game, who always has had joy playing the game, and I believe had that joy without being disrespectful to the game or to the other team. I think he's the epitome of what it means. Now, obviously, he is one of the greatest players ever. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. So when I say we need more players in the game like him, obviously, it would be nice to have that kind of talent in the game, but he's a generational talent. I'm talking about the way he played the game with joy and with respect. And leading up to that 3,000th hit, we see his mindset. So the series before, that was against the Rockies. The series before... They were playing the Yankees, and there was a night in which he went three for four, and that gave him 2,999 hits. And afterwards, he was asked about falling one hit shy or being one hit away, and his response was, who cares? We lost. When has the game ever been about individual accomplishments? That is a great quote. Now, I would probably have to respond to Miguel saying, now it's a lot 
about individual accomplishments, but your attitude is exactly what we ought to have. Well, then the next night they play the Yankees. He does not get a hit. He is coming to bat in the ninth inning. And I'll give credit to Aaron Boone. He did the right thing, but it was a gutsy move because they were in Detroit. They intentionally walked Miguel Cabrera so that he could not get the 3,000th hit that night. But as the crowd was booing, Miguel was basically saying, calm down, calm down, we have a lead. This is about winning the game. Again, that's what we need in the game of baseball. And then Friday night, series is still in Detroit, now against the Rockies. The game is postponed, but then he picks up hit number 3,000 on Saturday. And something I thought was interesting is that Miguel Cabrera got the baseball from his 3,000th hit. Now, I didn't look to see who was playing right field for the Rockies, but I can't believe he gave that ball up. I mean, that ball's worth a lot of money. Now, you might be saying, well, isn't that what happens all the time? I mean, sometimes in the if it goes in the stands, it's one thing, maybe a fan holds out on it, but I've never seen a player say, well, I'm not going to give up this baseball. Yeah, you're right. I haven't either. That's That's one of those unwritten rules, and I I thought we were doing away with unwritten rules. But we'll come back to that in a minute. One of the things that happened between two episodes ago and now that was very much discussed all over social media, all over the media in general, and a number of people contacted me asking my opinion, and that is that Clayton Kershaw, in the first start of the season that he had for the Dodgers, had pitched seven perfect innings with 13 strikeouts on only 80 pitches. And he was removed from the game. And there were a lot of people, media people, fans, people within the game, other players that said he should have been left in the game. He should have been given opportunity to pitch a perfect game. And any fan of the game, Dave Roberts, the manager who took him out, Clayton Kershaw, the man who was pitching, his teammates, all of us, any fan would want to see him have the opportunity to pitch a perfect game. That's understandable. And I do say that, I do believe this. I believe that if Kershaw had walked from the mound into the dugout after the seventh inning and said to Dave Roberts, I want to go back out there. Let me go back out there, that Dave Roberts would have said, okay. And so I don't think Clayton Kershaw said that. But here's something we have to keep in mind. And again, I'm I'm the... Nolan Ryan, time Seaver kind of pitch count guy. I'm really old school as it regards that kind of stuff. But we have to keep in mind a few things. Number one, Kershaw was hurt a number of times last year, and he's older. Spring training was shortened. This was his first start. But you say, well, wait a second. Seven innings, 80 pitches, and with 13 strikeouts, that's just remarkable. But seven innings, 80 pitches, he's averaging like 11 pitches per inning. 11 and a half, let's say. So two more innings, that just adds another 23 pitches. 103 pitches, that's not outrageous. It's not. But here's the situation, and this is where you have to understand Dave Roberts and his thinking. If he says, okay, 80 pitches, we were hoping to keep him under 100. And if you were to go 103, we could live with that. I'm going to send him back out for the eighth. But then what if Kershaw throws 24 pitches in the eighth inning? Still has a perfect game. Now he's up to 104 pitches. Do you send him back out for the ninth? What are you risking? Again, I'm old school, and all fans want to see Clayton Kershaw have an opportunity to get that perfect game, but understand the thinking of Dave Roberts and maybe even Clayton Kershaw. 
Why do we want to see a perfect game so much? Well, because it is a perfect game. It is an amazing thing to watch. And there have only been 23 perfect games in the 150 or so year history of Major League Baseball. And since there have been about 220,000 games played, that means we witness a perfect game once in every 10,000 games. It does not happen often. And that's why we want to see it when somebody is pitching the way Kershaw was in his first start for the Dodgers. As I mentioned, only 23 perfect games in history. Here's one of them. And a day off for him today. But now he's got a chance for something special. He's swung. Krasinski has got a throw down. It's a perfect day for Philip Butler. On the 21st of April, 2012 in Seattle. So why, of all the perfect games that I could even find audio on, which would be a lot of them, would I pick that one? Well, there's a few reasons. If you listen closely, it happened April 21st, 2012. In other words, last week was the 10th anniversary of that perfect game by Phil Humber of the Chicago White Sox. Secondly, I chose it because I actually met Phil when he was in AAA with the Twins. Mark Friends, who was one of the guests on In the Bullpen, was the strength and conditioning coach for the AAA team, which was Rochester for Minnesota. And I went to visit him when they were in Charlotte, and Phil was there. And so I got a chance to get to know him a little bit in my time there. But also because of the very strange finish to that game. Again, it was hard to tell with the audio, but what had happened is he has a perfect game, two outs, ninth inning, 3-2 count. And he throws a slider that's not even close to the strike zone. The umpire, who was Brian Runge, said that Brendan Ryan from the Mariners swung. Well, the ball, it was so much out of the zone that Przinsky couldn't catch it. And it didn't go all the way to the backstop, but it did go several feet away from Przinsky. And Ryan stopped to argue, saying, I didn't even come close to swinging at that. And if he didn't do that, he probably gets to first base, and there's no perfect game. But because he hesitated to argue, Przinsky was able to get the ball, throw to first base, and the game was over, and the perfected game, or perfect the perfect game, was intact. I would say the strangest end to a perfect game ever. Another reason why I picked that was because Phil Humber's career was, was kind of an up-and-down career, didn't have a lengthy career, didn't have a tremendous amount of success, and yet threw a perfect game. Yet another reason. As I mentioned, only 23 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball. But in 2012, there were three of them. And there have been none since then. So Humber was the first one in 2012. Matt Cain with the Giants, Felix Hernandez with the Mariners, also threw perfect games. Finally, there was a man who had a front row seat, literally, Maybe the best seat and the most impact on that perfect game outside of anybody other than Perzinski, who, Lord willing, will be a guest in the bullpen next week. And not only did he see one of the 23 perfect games in Major League Baseball history from a front row seat with tremendous impact, he saw two. Lord willing, he'll join us next week. Now, a lot of people are saying about Kershaw, let him pitch, let him go out there. And again, it's understandable. A lot of people are also saying, and have been for a long time, let the kids play. 
Now, on the one hand, I say, wait a second. That's what we need to discuss for the love of the game. What does that mean? But in the most basic sense, I say, amen. And in one sense in particular, I have seen already, what are we, three weeks into the season? Not Yeah, I guess three weeks. I've seen plays, and I saw one just on Friday night with Andrew McCutcheon with the Brewers, that I just find ridiculous. And that is the slide into second base breaking up a double play. And I would first say this. Why don't you go back and watch, let's say, any breaking up of double plays that took place in the 1970s? There were times in which the middle infielder would end up in shallow left field. He was taken out so much. And now it is so ridiculous that when somebody even does anything minor to break up the double play, he's out, and then the runner at first is out. And I saw it. It's happened again already a few times this year. People have brought it up. But I was watching the Brewers game on Friday. Andrew McCutcheon was on first base. There was a ground ball. He went into second base. He slid just to the outfield side of second base, but very much right next to it. Broke up the double play. There was no throw made. There was going to be no throw made. There's no chance that the double play was going to be turned. But as McCutcheon slid, he had his hands on the bag, and his momentum took him so his fingers came off the second base bag for about six inches in about one to two seconds. And because of that, the runner at first, and again, there was no chance that they were turning this double play. The runner at first is called out. That has got to change. That is a, that's a, it's a rule, and I get it. We don't want people to get hurt. I understand that. We shouldn't intentionally do things to hurt people. But breaking up a double play with a hard slide into second base isn't intentionally trying to hurt anybody. And good middle in, infielders will know how to get out of the way. As a matter of fact, it just dawned on me right now as I said that. When I was in the Giants system, I came up through the minor league system with the Giants. That's where I first played in the big leagues. The Giants, I think at the time, was their first base coach, then became their third base coach, and and maybe one of the more well-known third base coaches at that time, Wendell Kim. And I remember in spring training when we were in minor league camp, he came over, and he was acting the part of the middle infielder. And he said to our base runners, you come at me. You do anything you can to take me out. And Wendell would not get taken out. He would jump over. He would jump to the side. He would move this way. He would move that way. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And we've got to stop this nonsense with the breaking up of the double plays. So that's a written rule that has changed that I think needs to go back, or at least toward the way things used to be. But it's the unwritten rules that are being challenged as well. And we saw this happen on a couple of incidences over the last week or two with the San Francisco Giants. The first time, it was when they were playing the Padres, and they stole. This was earlier in the game, but they were up by a lot. They stole the base. And then uh, Mauricio Dubon bunted, I think in the sixth or seventh inning, when the Giants were up by nine. Well, Bob Melvin and the Padres and a whole lot of people did not take kindly to that. They were very upset. And that started this whole conversation about unwritten rules. And Gabe Kapler, the manager of the Giants, since that event has come out and said, listen, we're going to play this way. We don't care what the score is. If we think a steal is in order or if the first baseman plays behind our base runner, we're going to steal. We don't care about the unwritten rules. Now, it's interesting because a man who is one of the best San Francisco Giants players in history, Will Clark, who is in some capacity working for the Giants, probably is a special assistant to the general manager, 
he was quoted after that incident as saying, as long as there's guys like me in the game, someone's going to get hit. Now, part of the issue is guys like him are being pushed out of the game. But there's quite a contrast between the manager, who obviously has a lot more influence on what the Giants do than Will Clark does, but between Gabe Kapler's approach and Will Clark's approach. Another man who played in that era, a pitcher, Marvin Freeman, tweeted out this, Mutual respect and sportsmanship in baseball has been replaced with self-adulation and celebration. And then he said, or wrote, hashtag more fights to come. You can see his thinking. And I'm in line with his thinking. And I do think there will be more fights to come because one person or one team might say, well, we don't consider this disrespectful. And another would say, well, we do. And that's going to result in more fights. It's going to result in more people getting hit intentionally. As Will said, as long as people like me are in the game, someone is going to get hit. Well, that was the first incident. Then on Friday night, the Giants were playing the Nationals. The score was 7-0 until the bottom of the eighth when the Nats scored a run. Now it's 7-1. The Giants have nobody on, two outs, top of the ninth. Tyro Estrada singles. And after that, he attempts to steal second base. Up 7-1, top of the ninth. On his attempted steal, Brandon Crawford hits a single. And Estrada attempts to score, basically from first, but he's thrown out at the plate, and really by quite a lot. Well, after the game, Alcides Escobar and Victor Robles were not happy. see Robles and Escobar... Yeah, if you can read lips, you can see what Escobar is saying, and he's not happy about Estrada probably stealing second in the first place and then continuing to try to score. And this is not... This is something the Giants are going to be dealing with all year. I mean, we already heard about it with the uh, Padres, and Gabe Kapler came out after the game, so we're, we're going to try to... We're going to try to score as many runs as we can. Good comment there. This is something the Giants are going to have to deal with throughout the year. Now, we can debate and discuss what is respectful, what is sportsmanship. But what we cannot do, what we must not do, is debate whether respect and sportsmanship are necessary in the game of baseball, or for that matter, in the game of life. If we're not willing to discuss that, if we think those things aren't necessary, it's not the game that you love, but self. To borrow words from Marvin Freeman, self-adulation and celebration. And there will be more fights to come. There are a lot of things that need to go. There are a lot of things that, in my opinion, are jeopardizing the future of Major League Baseball. But one of the most significant, I think, is not being considered. It's going completely unnoticed by most baseball fans. And that is the setup of youth baseball in our day. Whenever I run into somebody that I know from the game, who's been around the game for a long time, I always ask, what do you think the best improvements that you have seen in your time in the game are? What do you think the most harmful changes that have taken place? And a few years ago, uh, when I was in spring training with the Brewers, we were playing at the Reds Complex. And Cam Bonifay, who was the general manager of the Pirates when I was with them, was there. He was working for the Reds. I think he still does. And I asked him that question. And as it regarded the things harming the game, he said, travel ball 
and showcases. One reason is it's all about self. But he brought up an even bigger reason. He said it's taking baseball away from the community. And the other thing it is doing is it it is requiring, or not requiring, it is causing so many people at 13, 14 years of age to be done playing baseball. Either because they're not talented enough to make a travel ball team, or they don't have the money. Their family does not have the money to have their son play in travel ball. And so he says, we're losing players and we're losing fans at an early age. I mentioned Paul Reddick last week, and in that same speech where he gave the story about Yogi Berra and Rachel Robinson, he has kept track because he deals a lot with amateur baseball, amateur players, amateur parents. And in that same discussion, he had been keeping track of the mass exit of people from Little League Baseball. And I don't remember all the numbers, but I do remember it was remarkable. And when I think back to my upbringing, when I was 13 years of age, I think that I was talented enough, I was good enough to make a travel ball team. And as I look around, there are so many now that really the talent is not that big of a factor. But I would not have had the ability to play travel ball if it was the way it is today, because we weren't poor, but there's no way my parents could afford to pay for travel ball. And so now 13-year-olds are having to make a decision. Do I spend, or their parents, do we spend a boatload of money to allow our son to keep playing, or is he done? And sadly for many, they're done. Again, when I was young, if you were any good at all, and by that I mean not that you were going to play college baseball, but just any good at all, you could be assured of the ability, without spending a lot of money, to play baseball during the summertime until you graduated high school. That's no longer the situation. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and I've been watching this now for three years, the very setup is a risk to the arms of young pitchers. Again, remember what I said. I'm a Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver pitch count kind of guy for big, strong major league pitchers. But the setups are requiring pitchers to do things they ought not do when they're 10, 11, 12, 14 years old. Some of the setups are such, I watched a tournament a couple of weekends ago where one team had to play four consecutive games on Sunday. Not on Sunday, on a day. I'll get to Sunday in a minute. And I'm thinking, there is no way. Now, maybe if you're in a, a metropolitan area in Florida or Texas or California, they might have enough pitchers to actually cover those innings. There's no way in Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee, that any team does. And so you're risking the health and well-being of these young pitchers. And not only is the cost prohibitive to families as it regards their sons playing, but to get into the games. If you want to bring your son's siblings, just the parents themselves, it can get costly. Then you add two or three or four or five siblings. So now what happens? Well, they can't go. And they can't go and see baseball at that level, and they're probably less likely to become fans at any level. And I heard this recently as well from somebody that lives in a big city in Texas, that there are actually parents, and this is not like one or two here or there, a common practice, parents taking out loans and loans from multiple thousands of dollars for their sons to play travel ball. And here's another issue, the biggest issue really of all. These games are consistently scheduled on Sundays, including Sundays at 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 11 a.m., and the like. So therefore, they encourage the forsaking of the assembling together of the saints. And from what I can see, 
they're succeeding. As a matter of fact, yesterday we were driving down to worship. We have a new complex just built, just opened up this year, just down the road from our house. It's right off the highway. We're driving on our way to worship, and I look. It's 8.30 in the morning, and I look, and the fields are already scattered with players and coaches and fans at 8.30 on Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, behold your God. Now, I used to say, back when I was a player in professional baseball, it's a great game, but a brutal business. And at the time, I only thought that about professional baseball. And and brutal business might not be necessarily the best terminology. It is a business, and so therefore it can be brutal. But nonetheless, I said it only about pro ball. Now, from what I can tell, it needs to be said about amateur baseball as well. And like I said, I've been watching it up close now for about three years. And I have to give an admonition to all of us who are parents. It's going to sound over the top, but... We need to take it seriously. I'm going to ask you this question. Are we offering our young sons to Molech? But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.